So the burning bush, the burning bush, another one of those iconic, famous stories in the Bible. This is either Smokey Bear's favorite passage or his least favorite passage, I'm not sure. Uh, But it's amazing, friends, to study the reception and re-presentation of this text throughout history. And so that is something that I'd like to do uh, to start our time. Uh, This is what we call in the biblical studies business reception history. Uh, It's common to study the the background of a text, what, what came before it, the conditions that gave rise to its creation. Uh, but reception talks about the kind of afterlife of a text uh, or its continued life. So how did people read, receive, reappropriate, apply this text? And we have tons of evidence of this practice uh, throughout history. Starting with the Old Testament, this idea of somebody being commissioned while serving in a field, which is what we see in Exodus 3, that idea is represented actually in the story of King Saul and then King David and even in the story of Elisha, the prophet. This idea of God speaking to someone or appearing to someone near a tree or a bush, this occurs in the story of Elijah. Jonah, the prophet, even before in Genesis, the story of Abraham and others. God manifesting as fire, probably the distinctive element in this passage, is taken up throughout the book of Exodus in the pillar of fire that accompanies Israel in the wilderness, as well as the fire that comes to Mount Sinai when God gives Moses the law. You keep going in the passage, and we'll read it in a moment. God commissioning Moses, I will send you, and then Moses resisting, who am I? That movement is taken up in the major prophets. You think of the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, woe, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah, chapter 1. God says, before I formed you, I appointed you. And he says, I do not know how to speak, and I'm only a youth. If you move into the New Testament, this passage is commented upon in the Gospels when the Sadducees ask Jesus about the resurrection. And I'll quote from Matthew's Gospel. It says, have you not read in the book of Moses, this is Jesus speaking, in the passage about the bush? How God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is, the God of the living, not the dead. And then in the book of Acts, in the speech of Stephen, this is chapter 7, we read, when 40 years passed, an angel appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush. And he says, this Moses whom the people rejected, God sent by the hand of the angel. If you move beyond the New Testament period, you can see early Jews, so rabbinic Jews, reading this as an allegory for the people of Israel, who are burned by their persecutors but not consumed like the bush. They start to see Moses as a good shepherd figure who literally 
had to shepherd sheep before shepherding the people of God. And you see some discussion of the divine name as it is presented in verse 14, but not as much as you'd expect. For Christians, and again, this is beyond the New Testament period, this is early and medieval Christianity. For Christians, and I quote, few passages lent themselves so admirably to the theological concerns of the early and medieval church. The number of treatises written on Exodus 3 by early Christians are overwhelming in sheer number. End quote. There are Church fathers such as Eusebius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, St. Ambrose, you may be familiar with some of these figures, who see in this passage an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Other figures such as Augustine, Aquinas, see it as this philosophical exploration of God's nature. And moving beyond that to the Reformation, you've got Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and others who see it, ironically, like the early Jews, as an allegory for the church, oppressed but not consumed, like the bush. And from this period, many others have put forth readings that are similar and a bit different in the modern and postmodern period. Friends, Exodus 3 is a text that has been received and represented in a variety of ways throughout history. Within the Old Testament itself, in the New Testament, and I think in the history of Jewish and Christian interpretation. So what I want to do this morning is read this text with, with the many who have read it before us. But I want to emphasize particularly those details which I think apply to this church at this moment in time. So that is my plan. We will read with the grain of the history of reading, uh, but we will emphasize details that apply to us. And so we'll read the text and study it verse by verse with that in mind. But before we do that, friends... Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the many who have labored with these stories, <clears throat> these passages, these scriptures before us. Lord, may we lean on them, yet may we read this as the living word of God which addresses us today. Lord, help us through our readings this morning to give future generations another reading to lean on, but may it be just what we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world today. Be present with us, Jesus. Help us to become more like you through our time together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3? And this is the second sermon in our series in Exodus, selections in Exodus. We'll be jumping around a bit, but we'll look at some key passages throughout the book for the next 
I believe, seven weeks. So Exodus chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 15 in the ESV. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You may be seated. What I want to do, friends, is walk through this text, pulling out details, trying to set it in its original Hebrew-Israelite context. And then what I want to do is draw some applications for us, some self-consciously Christian applications, reading it as Christians in the 21st century. And as we'll see, aspects of the many readings that I described will converge But for us, this Sunday, I believe there's a specific message. And so let's begin then by just jumping in at verse 1 in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 1 really sets the scene 
for us. This is a new episode in the narrative, and it tells us where things are taking place. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, so we learn that Moses by trade was a shepherd. And it says that he led the flock, ESV says, to the west side of the wilderness, that the language is difficult to interpret. What I think it means is deep, deep into the wilderness, into a kind of desolate place, away from habitation, civilization, that sort of thing, deep into the wilderness. And the narrator tells us that he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this either is Mount Sinai or is close to it. Mount Sinai is the place where God would appear to Moses later on in the book and would give the people the law, the Torah. But we are quite far from that chapter here in chapter 3. That hasn't happened yet. And so the narrator knows that it's happened, and if you've read the story, you know that that's a significant place. But at this stage, Moses doesn't know that this is a special place. But that's where he is. Verse 2 is a bit confusing uh, if you take it as the next step in this linear sequence or this story. I think it's better to read this as a summary statement of what the whole passage is about, and then we plunge into the details. So it says, in general, as almost a heading, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. That is what's generally happening in our whole passage. So I think the next detail, really, from Moses' shepherding is the second half of verse 2. As he is shepherding deep in the wilderness, it says, He looked, and behold, there was a bush there, and it was burning. Yet, it was not consumed. So Moses is going about his ordinary business, and he has ventured into a, a desolate place, but this doesn't seem to be that out of the ordinary for him, and he sees this natural miracle, that a bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And then in verse 3, Moses makes the decision to turn aside and see what's going on. Friends, this is striking, because elsewhere in Scripture, say, the book of Acts, with the Apostle Paul, God forces himself upon him in the road to Damascus. Remember that story? And he, he appears, and there's a great light, and he's struck to the ground. But here, God provides a sign and hopes that depends on Moses turning aside and taking a look at it. As we'll see, the entire story of God commissioning Moses depends on Moses turning aside from what he's doing and checking out this burning bush. So Moses talks to himself here in the Bible, so that tells us that it's okay to do that, right? He thinks to himself or speaks, I will turn aside and see what this thing is all about, this great sight. And the Lord is said to be responsive waiting for Moses to make the move. In verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside, then God called to him out of the bush. I think it is so significant that God doesn't force himself upon Moses here, but waits for Moses to act, and then he responds. And it says, He called to him out of the bush. 
and said, Moses, Moses. And this parallels stories earlier in Genesis where God calls Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. For Samuel, this happens, Samuel, Samuel. And Moses replies, here I am. Friends, I don't think Moses knows exactly who this is yet. Again, we have no Old Testament, at least for the Israelites, no Ten Commandments. Yahweh is still revealing himself. And Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. He knows more about the gods of Egypt than the God of Israel. But he knows that this is a divine being. And so he says, here I am at your service. Verse 5, God says, do not come near. This reminds me of Jesus after he's resurrected and speaks to Mary Magdalene. Don't, don't come any closer. There's a kind of numinous quality, a kind of sanctity to what's going on. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Moses doesn't know it yet, but this would be the place where God gives his covenant document that binds the people of Israel to him. The Ten Commandments, where God reveals himself to Moses, a sacred place. In ancient Israel, priests would serve in the temple barefoot. I don't know if you know this. Uh, Sandals were often made with the hide of skin of dead animals, and so they were thought to be kind of unclean. And so taking the sandal off and having direct contact with your foot in the ground signified holiness, a kind of sacred space. So this is sacred space, even though Moses doesn't know all the details yet. And finally, in verse 6, this God identifies himself. And he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, singular, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, God defines himself not by a certain specialty, I am the God of war, the God of the sea, the God of the desert, not by just a name, I am Yahweh, I am Elohim, but the God who has been with these people who has been faithful to, gracious to these people, the God who has wrapped himself up in their story, a God of particular people, particular generations, the God who was with Abraham, who was with Isaac, who was with Jacob, with the Hebrew midwives, and now with Moses, a particular God. And Moses does what any sensible person would do at this point. He hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses knows that this is a God unlike other gods. He might not know everything he will eventually know about this God, but he, he knows that this God is special. And so in verse 7, the section which stretches to verse 12, we move from God appearing to Moses to God commissioning Moses. In verse 7, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
This is an emphatic construction in Hebrew. It's, it's like two verbs just right next to each other. I have seen, I have really seen. It's emphatic. God is, is acquainted with, familiar with. He sees vividly the affliction of my people in Egypt. He's heard their cry, it says. And finally, it says, I know. I know their sufferings. Now, as Christians, we worship the crucified God. A God who became man and died on a cross. A God who knows suffering. Now, of course, this is a story which takes place hundreds of years before that. But if we think that God exists outside of time, I think in a way, the cross, at least for us, can be here on this page. When God says, I know their sufferings, it's not a God who is sitting in some comfortable room in heaven, theoretically knowing about their sufferings. This is a God who died on a cross, friends, acquainted with grief, a God who bled for us. I know their sufferings. And he goes on and tells Moses that I have come down. Not literally, it's not that God was upstairs and he comes down, but there is a sense in which God exists in a a different realm But he determines to enter the mess of human life, to bring the Israelites up out of Egypt, out of this cramped space where they're forced to be slaves, oppressed, mistreated, and to bring them into a spacious place, a good place, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is, of course, the promised land that God told Abraham his descendants would inhabit. And I actually learned this past week that milk and honey refers most likely to goat's milk and a kind of date syrup, not cow milk and bee honey. The idea is that the land is so fertile that it can support flocks and flocks and flocks of goats with rich pasture, and they'll produce milk and cream and those sorts of things. And it can also sustain groves and groves of date palms. And I've been to Israel, and friends, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. And there's actually studies showing that Bedouin nomads have lived in the wilderness in the Middle East and have subsisted on date syrup and goat's milk for weeks, weeks on end, just those foods. This is a land of abundance, of nourishment, of longevity, okay? In verse 9, God reiterates what he said before. The cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. I've seen their oppression. And then we get verse 10. After saying all this, God says to Moses, out of the bush, verse 10, come, or you could translate go, I will send you to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, God has just said before that I have come down to deliver them. So God is saying, I will do this thing, but he's also saying, you will do this thing. And we've talked about this and how the two can coexist. 
But Moses hears this, and it's like he forgets what God had just said before. He thinks it all depends on him. In verse 11, he says, who am I? You see this phrase in the Old Testament. Saul tries to give his daughter to David in marriage. Who am I to be son-in-law to the king? Solomon is supposed to build a temple for God. Who am I to build a house for God? Who am I? I think those are more honest responses. This almost seems evasive. As though Moses had forgotten that God said, I will do this, I will simply use you. Friends, God responds to this in verse 12. He doesn't respond directly by saying, Moses, this is who you are. He responds like Jesus does in the parables, indirectly, but with a better response, answering a better question. He says, but I will be with you. And that word I will be is ech yech. I want you to keep that in mind, ech yech. I will be with you. That's what matters. Not who you are, but the fact that I will be with you. Presence, and I would say power. Presence and power. In verse 13, Moses resists some more and says, uh, what if I go to the people of Israel, this guy who was raised in Pharaoh's palace, and, and I say, I've been sent by God, and they ask, what, what God? What's his name? In the ancient world, it was common to name gods, and we see this, Persephone, Zeus, Athena, Anubis, Baal, Asherah, all these gods and goddesses, and the name often tied a god to a certain place or a set of powers kind of specialty. I said it before, the god of the sea, the god of the harvest, the god of fertility, the storm god, the god of the Nile, things like that. And so Moses is thinking about this god in those terms. What's your name? What's your specialty? And God says to Moses in verse 14, in a verse that has been treated by Christians and Jews for centuries and thousands upon thousands of pages of discussion, God says, I am who I am. Or I really think better, I will be who I will be. Echyech, asher echyech. That same word from before, I will be with you, encouraging Moses with his presence, his power, I am not a God with a name like these other gods. I'm not a God with a fixed specialty, with a certain place, a jurisdiction. I'm not a God you can reduce, you can control, you can put into a box. I will show you who I am. I will tell you my name through centuries of faithful involvement with you. I will be who I will be. We get some humor, I think, at the end of verse 14. Say to the people, I am, or I will be, has sent me to you. How's that for a name? And then finally, in verse 15, God adds words which echo the words he said to Moses in verse 6. Say this to the people of Israel. 
Say, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who has wrapped himself up in your history, who has been faithful to you in all of these stories, many of which we've read, tell them that that God has sent you. He says, this is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered and known throughout all generations. And that, friends, is our passage, Exodus 3. Now, there's many different directions in which I could go at this point. You see in the history of interpretation many things you could emphasize. But what strikes me in this text, considering our moment, our context, is that God has chosen to define himself not through a name like other names, but rather through his presence with and his power for or on behalf of his people, his creation. When we read, I am who I am or I will be who I will be here, I don't think we're to dissect it in some philosophical laboratory as some have. I think we're to read it as a kind of divine refusal. A refusal of a name like other names. God, in other words, refuses to be reduced, fixed, limited, controlled. He says, I will define who I am. Through years, centuries of power and presence. My name will be no ordinary name. I think of the trees in The Lord of the Rings, if you've ever read or watched that story, how it takes them forever to just utter their name in their language. In the same way, God uttering his name is God faithfully and persistently and relentlessly involving himself with us. That is his name. This is something we see in Genesis and, of course, in Exodus, but, friends, we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus. That's the closest God gets to ever naming himself, Jesus. God has determined to reveal himself, not through simple labels, traits, or powers, but through a long, drawn-out, thousands of years old and still-running story. A story of committed unto death devotion to us, perfected in the story of Jesus. I am who I am, I will be who I will be, means that God is still in the process of speaking his name through his presence with and his power for us. Friends, if God has a name, a set of fixed descriptors to distinguish him from other gods, that name is Jesus. But not in the literal sense the life, the person of Jesus. 
Let me close with this. God indeed has a name. And I believe that name is still being uttered. God's tireless, relentless, unending love and mercy toward you and me, that, that, friends, is his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. for revealing it through centuries of faithful commitment to Israel, commitment to creation, so much so that you became a creature, one of us, so that we could be reunited with you, Lord. Help us not to limit you or try to reduce you, fix you, put you in a box, Lord. But Lord, help us to be sensitive to the way in which you have determined to be known, remembered. And that is most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. As we come together and celebrate the meal that you, Jesus, ordained for us. I pray that through it, we would be inspired to be your hands and feet in this needy world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.